welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest hailing all the way from New York. Brian K. Grimes Jr. is an Ivy League educated real estate entrepreneur and coach. Upon graduation from Columbia University in 2011, he embarked on a career in financial planning at AXA Advisors before transitioning to high net worth asset management at Bridgewater Advisors. In 2015, Brian then launched his own real estate development company in his hometown of Philadelphia and has since gone out to gut, renovate 300 plus rental properties across the country using the BRRRR strategy. He is raising his sons, Brian III and Thomas in the Bronx with his wife, Zila Acosta Grimes. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, but before we get into do what you do now, tell us tell us how you got here. Are you from a family of entrepreneurs? Are you the first? I'm always curious about where that entrepreneurial spirit comes from. I'm definitely from a family of entrepreneurs. My grandfather, he owned like a bunch of, you know, bars and auto body shops and, and things like that in, in uh, North Philly um, growing up. And he's always kind of, uh, he, he had always worked with his hands like his whole life. So um, very entrepreneurial. My parents are both entrepreneurial, um, father and mother. So uh, I definitely absorbed a lot of that. Um, there was some nine to five kind of energy, but not much of it. You know, a lot of it was really, you know, go out and kind of eat what you kill and make yeah. commissions and kind of that type of mentality. So it was, it was definitely uh, absorbed through osmosis. I love that. What What was the part that you really... Began kind of tipped you over on the edge too, where you were, where you were saying like, I really like that about grandpa, mom, and dad. You know what part of the entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurialism really, really kind of gravitated and kept you base there. And going back, I, I see you worked at a couple of a big firms, and then you went back. There. Yeah, yeah. I think well, yeah. Like, when I started, my first job was like a hundred percent commission. So in the financial planning. I kind of started off in that role where I was making my own um, hours. I was kind of being my own boss, but I was 100% commission, which means my first year I didn't make much, right? So I only made like $6,000 uh, my first year of working. So I was kind of paying to work. But I think it was it was really just um, the love of sales. Um, I feel like you learn the most in any business right on the front lines, interfacing with the uh, end consumer. And I kind of fell in love with it. For me, like I grew up a basketball guy um, in Philly during the Allen Iverson era. So everything was about basketball, uh, nationally ranked. My first high school game was against LeBron. Um, so everything uh, for me was sports. And what I found was sales was so much like sports. And um, real estate in, in itself was kind of had that same energy where you could apply that sports uh, attitude, the competition, the negotiations, the back and forth. Uh, into the business so it, for me it, it kind of matched what I was used to I love that yeah we we try to hire when we can uh, I'm with you in the sports I, I was an athlete as well basketball was my, my thing too uh, did not play against LeBron like you did that that's a really cool uh, little feature but like yeah. it, it gives you this uh, gives you this tenacity and the competitive nature of it all totally makes sense for then you know funneling into the entrepreneur part of it I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears hard and uh, talk about if we could just a little bit about affordable housing and whether we're, whether it's true affordable housing or just attainable housing, 
I'm sure you know the difference. Um, but we have a housing crisis in the United States. And, and I'm curious if, if you, through all of the real estate work that you're doing, um, see, like, what are the solutions for us to solve sort of this problem? I know it's a, we have a big mountain to climb here to try to get as many people as we can, hopefully, into, into decent housing. But uh, curious about your take on that. The solution is really co-living in many forms is what you're seeing. And I've been, I've been kind of pounding the table on co-living. Uh, co-living is where you will kind of share housing. So maybe you have a series of master suites in a property and you rent out each master suite, bedroom, bathroom individually, and everybody shares a common space. But you're even seeing a, a wrinkle of that um, in like the accessory, accessory dwelling unit uh, space, which you're seeing more on the West Coast uh, because they have the higher property values, the higher um, uh, property prices, but... Um, it's just unobtainable for the average American to, to purchase, right? The, the cost of your typical starter home is like 20X the median income. So mm -hmm. now you have the ability to build a new plot of, um, a new property in your backyard, essentially. But what's getting interesting is they're now allowing in some of these townships and municipalities where you can not only build a two-story, uh, 1,200 square foot, two-bed, one-bath, on a slab in your backyard, mm -hmm. you can get that parcel rezoned. So you can now reparcel in a lot of these places, get a separate tax ID number for the property, and now you can sell that property. They call it like an adult house hack. But you're you're seeing um, multiple variations of some type of shared living. They're increasing density within housing. So traditionally, you have all these zoning codes that prevent you from uh, taking a single family property and turning it into multifamily. There's like all these regulations against it. And now they're starting to go away because uh, everybody's waking up to the fact that the solution is to create more affordable housing. And how you do that is you increase the amount of density uh, that can be placed into these individual properties through co-living or through accessory dwelling units is, is what kind of what you're seeing. But that is the purest solution where you don't need uh, low income housing tax credits. You don't need vouchers. You don't need subsidies. You're just uh, allowing developers to solve the problem at a grassroots level uh, with some type of shared housing or co-living concept that is being um, played out in multiple different variations. Yeah, I love that. I love that, especially the the additional dwelling units in, in the rear of the property. You know, if you're if you're in these older neighborhoods where there's an alleyway, it just completely makes sense um, yeah. for that. Uh, tell us about uh investing in class C neighborhoods. First of all, I would love to know, I honestly don't know, tell me what a class C neighborhood is, and then some of the challenges that you found. Yeah, so because the human brain is, is wired linearly, uh, you kind of think of class A is like center city anywhere, the nicest real estate. Then you think class B is kind of like, if you go a little bit further out of that, you're in class B, and it's still nice, but it's more like family living, um, not as much amenities around. And then you think of class C as kind of like, that's the hood, right? Or kind of the outskirts uh, of what people would refer to as the hood. What I found is that it's not that linear. Class B is kind of off closer to the suburbs. Typically, that's the part of the city. If you're talking about like a major city, class A is center city. Class B is closer to the outskirts of the suburbs. So it's like once you get outside of class B, you're in the suburbs. Hmm. So it's those uh, immediate remote areas. Class C is right next to class A. Class C is where gentrification happens. Class C is um, where you have somebody doing a ground up deal 
and it just got flipped for 750,000 and you're like what and then there's a land lot next to it and an abandoned house you know two blocks away essentially there's a lot of blight in class c neighborhoods there's more crime for sure there are different types of issues that you have to uh, navigate but how you would view class c is as this blank canvas class c is where you can go in and you can buy a hundred properties over the course of three or four years within you know two square miles three square miles and really have that type of impact so it provides for a developer a uh, source of cheaper properties shells that you can buy and full gut renovate and and turn profit so i would say most of the development activity is happening in the c-class pockets because these are the areas where you can buy low and then experience the most appreciation because gentrification is happening uh, properties are being sold and flipped and they're using those a-class comps to create new value yeah. so that's where the creation is happening is what oh. i would say there is all these things but that's the creation piece yeah great breakdown the great breakdown I, i'm with you yeah the development i'm sitting in right now that we we designed built and developed ourselves classy 100 i mean what you just described is exactly it like there there are some definitely some vagrancy challenges that we had to overcome around this but we did use then the class a as the comp and it brought it up exactly what i didn't hear from you brian was with and it's okay that i didn't but i i'm trying to give you a layup here what i didn't hear from you was um that there was these big evil capitalists that were just kicking people out of neighborhoods or anything. It sounds, you know, you were just emphasizing the opportunity. What, what do you, I don't know if there's even anything you can layer onto it, but if you could, what would you tell the, you know, haters, so to speak, about this idea that gentrification is bad? I mean, it seems like you're improving property and property values and, and in bettering the neighborhood with, with investing in these neighborhoods. Yeah, I think one there there's different there are different ways to skin that cat, and um, one is like what I do. I would consider more uh, what I call dentrification than gentrification. Mm. So I I add more density to these areas. If you look at the problem in a C class neighborhood, it's blight, it's vacancy and blight. If you have an abandoned house, you can as a drug dealer store drugs there and start doing things there, and there are less eyeballs in the neighborhood. When you start to rebuild these properties, I might not even flip them. I might rebuild them and then refinance out based on another comp. When I refinance out on a deal, I'm not creating a gentrified comp that's going to drive up property values. I'm just refinancing based on what's already there. So you can go with more of a gentrification uh, mindset where you're adding the people who historically lived in these neighborhoods. You're bringing them back by creating a better product, stainless steel uh, appliances, granite countertops, hardwood floors, heat and air conditioning, you're improving the community. Um, so that is kind of more what I focus on versus gentrification. Now, my my one defense of gentrification is you, you in order to form a, what I would consider a valid opinion on gentrification, you need to actually face the consumer. It goes back to that sales um, part of it, where I actually sit in front of the person the grandma who's selling her house because her sons don't know anything about real estate. In fact, if you if you polled the average uh, male in America right now, especially in my generation, they don't know how to fix anything in a the house. They don't know how to do anything. The average, like uh, you know, American male. Oh, I'm so with you. Not, if I if I can interject, right? yeah, yeah. I yeah. just I just moved back into one of my rentals because we're, we're selling the primary house. Every yeah. single door handle was loose. Every single handle, because I was like, do they not understand how to run a, a Phillips? No, they don't. <laughs> they, the, the men in America, they don't know how to fix anything. Yeah. They don't know how to do anything. So they're not helping 
the, the older generation to maintain these properties. So as somebody's trying to age, you know, out of out of the workforce, they have this big 2000 square foot property has fallen in on their head. A lot of them want to sell. They're like, hey, can I get 80K for this thing? And mm-hmm. I want to move down south and do something. So you have to get to that level to say, well, if there wasn't a market maker on the other end, most of these houses would just fall on people's heads. Like the, the solution is not always people are getting displaced. Yeah. That's kind of an extreme version. There are a lot of people who are looking to sell and that is what's uh, partially funding their retirement. And they want that at an individual level because they can't maintain the property It's not a solution. So um, you have to be fair to those people as well. And are they a problem because they want to sell to better their individual life? So gentrification kind of makes it this big, broad thing without individual uh, motivations and self-interest. And I think that that's disingenuous in terms of an argument. Yes, I agree. Yeah, the, I, I'm with you one to one with the trying, you know, like whose opinion holds more weight. I, I would take Brian's opinion 100%. He's out there talking face to face, beautiful breakdown. Yeah. Um, interest rates are crazy high right now, as you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. so is now a good time to invest in real estate in your opinion. And by the way, this is not advice. We're not giving yet. We're just saying this is his, Brian's opinion. I think, um, I think it's always a good time to invest in real estate. It, what you have, what uh, most people need to learn is that the market is constantly ebbing and flowing. It's like the, there was a, a philosopher who said, you never step in the same river twice. Um, it's always moving right? This real estate game. So you need multiple strategies. So right now, uh, as rates are ticked up, you need more creative financing solutions subject to lease purchase options, sandwich lease options. Um, Subject three is is another strategy that is kind of coming out, but you need to learn creative financing and how to leverage the existing debt that's already on properties. If you know how to do that, you can take over, you know, somebody's mortgage with a 3% or 4% rate. Um, Rates are up, they're projected to tick back down. And I think that there's going to be a window of opportunity as that happens. When rates tick back down, we know uh, supply is going to be very um, yep. constricted. So prices will probably go back up higher in my projection if rates continue to tick down, which they're projected to do as we get closer to uh, the end of 2024 uh, into 2025. So I think a window of opportunity will be created. And there's still cash flow, but you have to you have to know co-living. You have to get more advanced. You have to have more exit options. I will just say the games got harder. Yes. It was easier with lower rates. You could just throw a dart and hit cash flow. Now you have to be a professional. If you don't know what you're doing, you better get mentorship because you're not just going to run into this game and win. You have to know more and have more skills uh, at your fingertips to win. 100%. Let's say somebody was convinced by this, our conversation today, Brian, they're like, yep, real estate, it's the way to go. Um, what do you think is the best way for somebody just brand new to get into real estate investing? I think you start off, I mean, one, the the, the way that most of us, pretty much every real estate guy I've spoken with uh, got started was with a house hack, some type of FHA house hack uh, into a multi. That's a great way to go. But I, I also think uh, the first thing to invest in with real estate is you. It's your education, because this is an unforgiving game. And there are some un- unscrupulous uh, players out there who are just out there to really rip you off and take your money. So you better invest in your own financial education. There are people out there who've made literally a million uh, dollars worth of mistakes so that you don't have to. Yeah. And trust me, there's not much value in uh, the lesson of getting burned for 50 grand by a GC. There's not that much value in it versus taking a couple of grand and getting in a mentorship program and just learning those lessons and more. 
So I would say the first uh, thing to invest on in, in real estate is you and your mindset. Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. You are your health is your wealth, and your knowledge it goes with that hand in hand. hundred percent. If people, so like, what if I don't have cash? What if I don't have good credit? How can I start getting in that way? You have to learn creative financing. You have to. You have to almost learn. Uh, you have to one break through your disbelief because there's a general disbelief that there is a way to invest in real estate without cash or credit. People just don't believe it, and I'm. I uh, also don't didn't believe it, right? When I first got started, maybe 14 years ago, I was at a Robert Kiyosaki conference in Philly, and they were talking about lease purchase options, sand, uh, subject to sandwich lease options. And it was so far over my head. I was like, man, this thing ain't real. This thing, nobody can do this. Mm -hmm. And then as I learned more about the game, I started to become more sophisticated and realize, wow, this stuff is uh, dead serious. And it's just a, a matter of um, finding motivated sellers, getting in front of people who are probably going to lose their house anyway, and structuring a win-win scenario where you win, they win, and maybe you take that property and rent the owners of somebody else who has bad credit. So you don't need credit. You don't need cash. You can leverage the existing debt on a property and win. You just have to get in front of the right people. You have to talk to motivated sellers, and you have to be sophisticated enough or have the education to explain to them this unknown thing, because most people only sell their house once or twice in their life. Yep. They're not professional investors. So you have to educate people on why this can be a solution and how it can help them. And if you can truly help people, uh, there's nothing wrong with, you know, getting rewarded as well. We, I, now I get why we get along economically. I could sense it, Brian, when you were saying, but you, you the, the name you threw out there, Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad. I love that. Where did you, how did you get into Robert? Was it from your education? Where, where does your economics come from? I mean, I am a, I'm a Columbia econ major. So there's, there's always like that ability to uh, just pick it up, but um, definitely my best friend, man, uh, growing up a guy I played basketball with when he uh, graduated, he, he was a couple years ahead of me. He got into the kind of sectionating properties and he was reading Donald Trump books and Robert yeah. Kiyosaki books, whatever, whatever uh, he could get his hands on. And we were always just talking about it as as a best friend, like our conversations shifted from sports to just real estate, real estate, real estate. Yeah. And we started pushing each other. And um, it, it was just something that I, I knew I had to do. But definitely from him and us just kind of always talking about real estate, we kind of both got hooked into that like super early, uh, mm -hmm. that rich dad, poor dad stuff. And, and it just became the walk of life. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're living it. You're living it, but you're here on this show. I love, I love your background, you know, the 300 plus rental properties. So on that note of, I imagine you GC'd all that work. Did you, did you, how did you, did you find a mentor for that? Or did you, you know, did your family kind of give you those kind of tools and you at least knew how to do basic stuff and then just leaned into it? School of hard knocks, guys. School yeah. of hard knocks. Getting <laughs> smacked around, getting burned by GCs. My first, you know, heavy project. I got ripped for forty grand by a GC, and then had to really wake up and, and figure this thing out. And um, it was it was kind of uh, you know a lot of trials and tribulations and just figuring it out on the fly. But it, it uh, led me to really create like a mentorship program and, and some of the things I do now because the pain that you go through, I, I really can't express it to you guys, but getting ripped for 40 grand by a contractor when you're in the middle of a project, there's just so much pain in it that, you know, as I got uh, more advanced, I was like, I got to figure out a way to give back and um, help people to not have to go through these types of experiences. So it, it became a great motivator, but unfortunately I had to learn from the school of hard knocks. It teaches you, but 
it is not more valuable or um, more profitable than just getting mentorship and, and accelerating. I just couldn't find a mentor 10 years ago. Social media wasn't this built out. There weren't all these great podcasts. It, it just wasn't the same environment for, especially for C-class investing. There wasn't really a, there still are very few people who talk about C-class investing. I'm one of them, um, but very few talk about it. Oh yeah. That's one of the reasons why I had John. I mean, there was just multiple things that stuck out to me that I wanted to pick your brain about. I want to go, we're going to, we're going to uh, put a pin in, I want to talk about the mentorship and, and what you do to help people avoid the pitfalls. But, but first, you know, I got to, there's some more just basic uh, questions I want to ask you because people are always, you know, my, my business partner is more adverse to not doing real estate and I'm much a real estate bug. I, you know, my goal is to try to have um, about 10 properties underneath my belt. By the time I'm 45, I'm 40 and, and kind of move in that direction. Uh, that just feels like the right way to meet for me. I was, my ex-wife was a realtor and an investor and she proved to me many, many times, like you make money with real estate in five different ways versus the stock market. And when you yeah. do the math, so, so why, what is your pitch for why you think the stock, well, you know, actually the stock market versus real estate, one versus the other. I think um, if you boil it down to kind of like first principles thinking, if you look at real estate versus the stock market as just like a, a person, let's say we, we both know nothing about either, right? There's a bazillion stocks out there, bonds and derivatives, and you can just get really in the weeds. And then you have real estate. If you go to any major city, maybe there's 2,000 properties on the market right now that you could even purchase. So in a week, couple of weekends, you could look at every property on the market for sale where you could never do that with uh, stocks and securities. Now you can take out of those 2000 properties and you can see what's overvalued and undervalued based upon condition and after repair values. And this allows you a, to develop an insight into picking the right type of a deal, a winner, an undervalued asset that you can return to fair market value and produce a profit off of a lot easier as the average bear than you ever could in the stock market which means you can you can you have a higher chance of success naturally not to account for the fact that real estate is better on taxes the the tax code in the US was written for uh, landowners and business owners as a real estate investor you're both so you're getting tax advantages and benefits that you don't even know exist and you don't even need to know it, it exists yeah. that's the beautiful part about real Just estate you'll in. find out yeah mm -hmm. you'll find out and you'll be like whoa that's great you don't even have to produce cash flow to win on the property. You can get tax write-offs from a property and appreciation, ghost depreciation, you know, accelerated depreciation, bonus depreciation, cost segregation studies. There's all these different things that you can do to adjust the real estate to fit your lifestyle. You could flip houses if you want faster money. You could buy and hold and refinance and do the birth strategy if you're into that slower, steady money and break your way out of the nine to five. You can design real estate around your life in a different way. Uh, there And it's the ultimate leverage. I have 100% lenders out there that'll give you 100% of the money to acquire and renovate properties. You don't get 100% leverage to invest in the stock market. Yep. Not like that. Maybe on some deriv some crazy derivatives, but you don't really want to be or or margins, yeah, and, yeah, right. or margins, yeah. And, and we've seen we've seen that play out over and over again with the bubbles yeah. and all of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's such yeah. a it's such a nice safe bet. I I am with you. You you, you mentioned um, looking at property out of town. So I'm oh, curious. Yeah. 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 How, how, how does one that, that, that like people, some people are just really nervous about even buying in town. Right. But like, it's gotta yeah. be a whole nother mental leap if you're out of town, what kind of tips, strategies, like how do you get comfortable 
and just get comfortable with it and doing stuff like that, right? Investing out of town. I think um, if, if, if people get too comfortable with it, I always check their pulse because I say, <laughs> I want to make sure you're still, you know, taking this thing seriously. But um, I would say it's all systems based. Everything that I found in business period is about systems. The, the businesses with the best systems typically win. They outcompete. Uh, they're not the most talented, even for marketing. The people with the best systems in marketing, they typically win and make more money. Mm -hmm. So I look at it and say, uh, if you want to invest out of town, you need systems. The average person thinks of themselves investing out of town. So then they look, okay, I'll do a two hour trip over here, but that's four hours because it's a round trip. Then there's lunch breaks and traffic is five hours. How about you just hire a college kid post on a, a college job board, um, wherever you want to invest, hire a college kid with a smartphone who can run out and shoot videos of a property. Now you have a system because you're not now, you now you're not spending $200 round trip on gas and tolls and time and energy. You're spending $20 for a visit to go shoot a video. Now you can see 10 properties for when you could see one and waste all of your time. Now you still have all your energy and you have a system you can go to. So you can now manage a property remotely because you can see everything with today's technology with an independent third-party inspector, not relying on a contractor who's incentivized to lie to you, yep. right? To hide the work. So you start to create systems to give you the physical um, power of being there without being there. Think about, think about the power in, a, um, in an airport. Who's really controlling the show? Is it the pilot? So he's driving the plane, right? But then there's air traffic control and they're controlling 100 planes. So they're controlling more power behind the screen than the person physically in the driver's seat. And when you absorb that mentality and start mm. to uh, digest it into your real estate business, you start to learn, well, how am I going to scale up? What if I wanted to do 100 deals a year? You can't physically do 100 deals a year anyway. So you better learn the next level of the game, which is how to do it remotely behind the screen and control the the company and once you learn that now you can invest anywhere because a, a, a mile away or a hundred miles away or a thousand miles away you know that you can't go to see it all anyway so that it kind of forces you out of that mindset and um that's what happened to me is i got forced out of the mindset and i started to see wow i can do way more remotely than i could do physically i'm unlocked now and now i'm just going to invest where my money goes further and that's what everybody should do especially the west coasters you're in LA, you're in some of these markets, Take, learn how to invest out of town where your money goes further. This is what smart money managers do. They don't buy overpriced securities. They buy undervalued securities and then they hold them until they return a fair market value. And then they sell them at a profit, the spread. That's how smart uh, money managers, portfolio managers invest. They don't care yeah. where the securities are. Yeah. You, you, there was a phrase that was popping into my head as you were, as you were speaking there and it was discipline equals freedom. But then I came up with, sounds like like delegation equals multiplication. And that's, that's what you're doing. I love that. Yeah. Uh, let's now let's kind of take the pin out here and I would love to hear, tell me about when you, when you decided to launch into trying to, trying to be a mentor and the mentorship and helping people in the way that you wish you maybe would have helped. So you could have avoided that 40 K. Yeah, I think when you're having success in anything, people want to pick your brain, right? So people want to take you to a cup of coffee or out to lunch. And I did a bunch of that. And I started to see like, I can't, I can't transport a decade's worth of game over a cup of coffee. It just wasn't working. So I created a program that could take somebody from zero to like 100 properties, the 100 Keys Masterclass, uh, I termed it. 
And it, it was just like phenomenal. I started getting good reviews from people. They started loving it. And it kind of took on a life of its own. Um, so I just kept expanding upon it and kind of marketing it more and uh, seeing the feedback. Like I've had mentees come in, very little capital, nine months in a mentorship, they got 27 units starting from like scratch. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, man, the the power of this thing is doing exactly what I what I wanted it to do. And from a, a everybody has like a selfish motivation, right? And mine was, I was thinking about what I did in my hometown. I said, I went back to Philly, built 250 properties. And I t- took a step back and said, well, what can I do uh, to have more impact? And there were two decisions. One, I could build more properties by myself, but there was no leverage in that. There was no um, mass movement in that. And I said, number two, I could build a thousand developers. If I build a thousand developers, they can go into every C-class neighborhood in America and start to restore these uh, communities because there is a real mission behind what I do. I could just flip houses in the A-class all day mm-hmm. and never touch the C-class, but it's part of the mission. I want to restore these communities. I want to eliminate blight. I want to be part of that solution. You know, so uh, creating other developers allowed me to have more of a national impact. So my impacts felt nationally at this point because I'm improving communities even through other developers and helping them to do it in a more impactful way. These developers, by the way, if they're doing a million dollars worth of deals a year, they're creating jobs, they're putting food yep. on the table for contractors. This thing is a, a real um, ecosystem, ecosystem yeah. <laughs> that, that gets fed. And when you're a part of that ecosystem, you get rewarded. Like you're a part of the machine, you're, you know? So it's, uh, it's just been a gift that keeps on giving. And I like win, win, win scenarios. So it, it's kind of part of that. Yeah. God bless you, man. I, I love what you're doing. This is, this is fantastic. Uh, Brian, I asked two last questions here as we run up on the half hour. Uh, I ask everybody these first one is knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time when you first started your business before you took down that first property, what is one piece of advice you'd give your former self? Um, you can do it alone. You know, a lot of us want to partner and and do these things. Some of these partnerships are worse than your, than marriages. Um, and they can turn out really bad as well bet on yourself and you can do it on your, by yourself. You don't feel like you can when you're just getting started, but you'll climb a little bit higher. You see a little bit further, just trust the game. Don't be in a rush and bet on yourself. Yeah. Find a mentor. I uh, look into Brian's class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian, if people, people listening to this want to find, follow you, take the class, where can they, where can they, where can they go to find that stuff out? I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. You can find me on YouTube, uh, Brian Loves Cash Flow uh, on YouTube, which is re- easy to remember because I love cash flow. Uh, on Instagram, Brian Grimes underscore 247 CFU for the 247 Cash Flow University. Uh, you can find me on uh, TikTok at Grimes Estate, uh, on LinkedIn, Brian Grimes Real Estate. All of that back uh, channels to a free real estate training on www.workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. Uh, workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. That's a free training that'll show you how to acquire properties for pennies on a dollar all across the country. Don't want to miss out on that free offer. Beautiful. Brian, thank you so much for your time, your insight. Uh, we're just wishing you nothing but the best here, bud. You're making a positive impact on America. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. I appreciate you uh, for having me.